When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back. It's Monday. It's Buckeye Talk, and that means it's Doug and Nathan, and we are here to talk about the Ohio State Buckeyes, the national scene, and where Ohio State fits into that, and then finish up as we always do on this pod with what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking. I have a baseball thing I want to talk about a little bit in that. And we are going to start off from a national perspective. Usually we start with Ohio State. But we want to start with the big picture because Nathan Baird, you this week were one of four AP voters to rank the Ohio State Buckeyes number one on your ballot. They remain number three in the polls. I double checked uh, PollTracker.com. Georgia's number one. Georgia got 55 first place votes, six seconds and two thirds. Alabama got four first place votes. 31 seconds, 27 thirds, and one fourth. Ohio State got four first place votes, 26 seconds, and 33 thirds. So there's that stray fourth place vote from Sam McEwen from the Nebraska. He had Clemson third, but for the most part, it's five votes. There's like there's basically five people who have Alabama slightly ahead of Ohio State, and that's the difference of why Alabama remains number two and Ohio state is number three, but you had a number one, which is a change. Explain yourself, young man. Supposed to be the third team. This is five polls, including, or is it six this week? Five. So I guess it's five polls, including the preseason. And I've had three different teams. Number one already. None of them have lost. Uh, Cause I had Alabama as my preseason. Number one, then Georgia became my number one after they were uh, smoking people. Um, but for Ohio State, like, again, I, I just sort of, as I wrote in the post that I do every uh, Sunday morning for the site, I, you look at what they've done so far, and I think the schedules balance out pretty evenly as far as being able to do a, a good head-to-head comparison between Georgia and Ohio State. You know, Georgia beating an FCS program in Samford and uh, Ohio State beating Arkansas State, um, similar results there. Um, Ohio State crushes Toledo. Georgia had trouble with its MAC f- team, Kent State. Trouble, relative trouble. Uh, you know, almost still doubled them up. But yeah, I think people know what I'm saying there. I mean, Ohio State waxed their opponent, whereas that team stuck around a little bit with Georgia. And Georgia uh, has the 
big win over Oregon and also a, a big win at South Carolina, although South Carolina was never really considered like a really strong team. And I think they were kind of weakening as we go along. And then Notre Dame opened with the win over um, Ohio State opened with the win over Notre Dame and then crushed another team that used to be ranked in Wisconsin. So for me, it was two things. And I think on the balance of all that, I can understand why someone would still vote Georgia one um, because the, the extent of the Oregon win is convincing, I think in itself, the Ohio state thing to me was just the lean of the most recent result. And the fact that they're doing it with almost nothing from Jackson Smith and Jigba with um, the, the, people that they're missing on defense and I know the cornerbacks weren't setting the world on fire but to be down to your your fourth and fifth guys there in a game uh where against a team that you, you thought was going to be able to challenge them a little bit just those factors they were we're seeing an incomplete Ohio State team do some of these things whereas it would maybe be different if like Georgia were missing Brock Bowers and we're still doing these things you know what I mean but Ohio State missing someone the caliber of Jackson Smith and Jigba and doing these things to also led, leads you to believe that there's an even better version of Ohio State than what they're already putting on the field, which starts to look like a bit of a wash with Georgia in the first place. That's interesting that you give Ohio State almost bonus points for winning without important players, the way you're sort of describing it. That if they were doing the exact same thing, but Jackson Smith and Jigba had been out there the whole time, you would view that as slightly less impressive than what they've done or you, you you see it sounds like the way you're describing it you at least would view it differently well i it's one of those things that you're talking about kind of a tiebreaker scenario almost at this point right you know what i'm saying i think the argument that i'm overall making is that i think georgia and ohio state through these four games the resume is actually pretty close so when you start stacking up the what what factors are beyond just the results on the field that's where I think that one kind of comes into play that I think, you, and I think that's fair to say that um, when it's, when I, now having said that, I don't know the intricacies of the Georgia roster. I don't know that they're missing someone of great importance. I don't think they're missing anyone of the importance of Jackson's with the Jigbo from what I've read and watched, you know what I'm yeah. saying? That, that would be pretty obvious, like who those guys were that they would be missing, that they would still be able to have this kind of result. Um, so that also factors into it too. It's I think that Jackson with the Jigba and and in the corners too, but really Jackson with the Jigba, that was the identity. You thought we thought Ohio State was a national championship contender in part because it would have Jackson Smith and Jigba living in the middle of this offense, and it is barely had him at all, and yet they're still doing what they're starting to do to these teams. I think this is a completely interesting and valid discussion. I think first place votes 55 Georgia for Bama for Ohio state, I think is wrong because I think Ohio state is closer to Georgia than it is to Bama. Bama has three wins over nobody's Utah state, Louisiana, Monroe and Vanderbilt. And they should have lost to Texas. So like the only team they with a pulse that they've played, they beat 2019 and they got some help in that game from an injury to Texas's starting quarterback from some calls by the officials. So it's odd to me that Bama, that Ohio state is, is in a race with Bama and Georgia's clearly ahead because I think what would make more sense is Bama's third and Ohio state's in a race with, in a race with Georgia. I do think 
I don't know that it matters. Georgia's best result, its best performance is week one. Ohio State's best performance is week four, both, I think, in quality and quality of opponent. Georgia still is ahead. Georgia still has the best win among Georgia and Ohio State because to destroy Oregon is the best win. But, you know, Notre Dame and Wisconsin are both real wins. South Carolina, whatever you think of them, they have some good players, right? And they both have – it's weird. The door cracked here because they goofed around with Kent State. Yeah. So I think if they had beaten Kent State 60 to nothing, you probably would have kept Georgia number one. But they cracked the door. But that's how all this works. I mean, everything matters. Everything goes in the pot. And just a little bit of a goofy Saturday from Georgia on a day when Ohio State – absolutely takes care of business on both sides of the ball. That's how it works, man. I mean, like there's no apologies for that. And we're going to find out more data, but I think in the end, I think you and I both agree. Do you, I, I guess we're not surprised that the first place votes are 55, four and four, because we have a feel for how AP voters think at this point. But I think it's, I think it's a bad perception by voters who are just like, Oh, well, of course, Georgia. And then, well, you know, bam, I don't know. Like it's, I think Ohio State should definitely be two. And maybe Ohio State, instead of four first-place votes, should have 17 first-place votes, you know? Yeah, I thought that Ohio State might move up to number two, and it's close. They're only separated by four points. I thought they might be able to make the jump based on just this this past week's results. Now, it's not like Alabama didn't – I mean, they beat Vanderbilt 55-3. to three, So, I mean, they, they exerted themselves, too, against a conference opponent. So – Whatever. And the Georgia actually is the one that has a... a, It's Rutgers. It's Rutgers. It's fancy Rutgers. Vanderbilt's fancy Rutgers. Right. Alabama won at Texas and Georgia won at South Carolina. Ohio State hasn't had to play a road game. Alabama shouldn't have won at Texas. I understand. But regardless, all I'm saying is that uh, what I think happens, what I know happens, is that you have a team ranked a certain level and you don't have the either guts or uh, analytical approach to move that team down, even if they win, or to move someone else up. I think there are people who are really hesitant to do that all the way down their poll, one through 25. Like every Sunday morning, whichever team that I left out last week, like last week I had everybody in Utah mad at me, and this week everybody in Kansas is mad at me, even though I voted for Kansas last week and had voted for Utah before. And they're at like, how, how, you know, you had the number 23 last week and they won. How did you move them down? I'm like, well, because it's every week for me is a completely new evaluation of however many weeks have been up to that point. So, you know, when, when, when Alabama and Ohio State and Georgia are all winning early and I had Alabama or had Georgia third, but, Based on the quality of who Georgia had beaten, I made them the number one team. I thought it was obvious that they would be the number one team. But I think there is an obvious one and two right now. I think that, especially when you consider that Alabama, by some estimation, should have lost that game, as you just said, that they've been on, they were on the precipice of a loss more, much closer than either of these two teams were. And that was a team that I respected at the time in in Texas. They've obviously had some other, um, Results since then, too. Uh, anyway, just long, long story short, yeah, I think I was surprised that there wasn't that Ohio State isn't number two right now. But as I also told our texters um, when I said on my poll, I think this is I, I could vote Georgia number one again next week to kind of finish the thought oh, for of sure. starting there. Because and, and neither of these teams, I forget the Georgia, but you know, Ohio State's playing Rutgers, they're playing Michigan State, which looked like it was gonna be maybe good this year. Now it looks like it might be I mean, not so good. 
I mean, they might be they're probably better than Indiana and Rutgers, but we'll see. Oh, they're de- oh yeah, they're de- they are. Washington we'll and Minnesota are actually both pretty good. The two teams they just lost to, although they got blown yeah, off the field by Minnesota. Right? Yeah. They got at home. They got waxed yeah. at home by Minnesota, which is what gave me some pause. Although I'm voting Minnesota relatively high now, uh, partially off of that. So I don't know. I don't think I think they are better than Indiana Rutgers, but I I think they're sliding down to a level where they could lose to Indiana or Rutgers. Which so, is so you know to have people on alert. Georgia uh, next week gets Missouri. They're at Missouri. Then Auburn. Then Auburn. Auburn's not good. And then Vanderbilt. So Vanderbilt's not good. So we're not going to find out about anything out about Georgia for a while. Uh, by week, then, then Florida. To, well, they're not going to lose to Missouri, Auburn, or Vanderbilt. We are going to find out about Bama though, because it just depends. Do you think any? Do you think these mid-tier SEC teams are any good? I think they're maybe interesting, but the next. Three for Bama at Arkansas, the Texas A&M Jimbo Saban grudge match, and then Tennessee. And Tennessee, I don't know. Tennessee is by yards per game the only offense in the country ahead of Ohio State right now. Tennessee is averaging 559 yards per game, and Ohio State is averaging 558. So Hendon Hooker's for real. He's like a, he's like a real quarterback. And I'm not saying Bama's going to lose, but Bama's going to get tested. Bama had a had a stretch like this last year where on the College Football Survivor Show, I said, I think Bama's going to lose in the next three weeks, and they did. That's what, That was in the stretch where they lost to Texas A&M. I, th- I think Bama could lose in the next three weeks. It's yeah. like, you know, Arkansas beats you up, and then there's like the mental, you know, energy ex- expended on Jimbo, even if Texas A&M isn't very good. And then all of a sudden, you go to Tennessee, and here's Hendon Hooker, who's a real dude. And watch out Nick Saban. So we're they're going to be tested. Georgia's not for a little while. I don't know how real Kentucky is. People are in love with Will Levis. They have a couple good wins. They're in the top 10 right now. Again, the debate of like, who's the second, who's the third best team in the SEC? I, I don't think we know. It, it might be Tennessee. It really might be Tennessee. But we will find out more about those two teams coming up. It is a clear gap, though, because there are, of the 65 power conference teams, 19 are undefeated, Nathan Baird. And I wrote them down, and I'm, I wrote them down on a yellow legal pad because I'm a fancy, a fancy boy. In the ACC, it's Clemson, Syracuse, NC State, and Florida State. Big 12, it's Kansas, Oklahoma State, and TCU. Big 10, it's Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, and Minnesota. Pac-12, it's USC, UCLA, and Washington. In the SEC, it's Georgia, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Ole Miss. I think maybe I tried to write down how many of those 19, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. I'm trying to be generous. How many of those are real, right? Congratulations, Syracuse. I mean, it's great. Congratulations. Congratulations, Kansas. And maybe we'll have a little debate about how to rank Kansas at the end of this congratulations tcu congratulations florida state congratulations ucla but like you're not you're not gonna be undefeated as soon as you play real teams right i I was so i was reading uh, trying to read the write it down as you went off i know that there's five of those teams that i am not voting for i did vote for kansas last week i did not vote for them this week after some other teams had more impressive wins like minnesota winning at michigan state the way they did i thought that made them a team that was worthy of being in the top 25 more than kansas which just beat duke which isn't a very good team 
So in trying to look, I, I had 13 of the 19 that being very, very generous. Well, not that generous. I, I considered sort of real that you're undefeated now. And you know what? You also might be good all year. Now, you're not going to stay undefeated, but you might be good. So those teams were Clemson, North Carolina State, Oklahoma State, Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State. Maybe this is going to match up with the teams that you ranked. USC, Washington, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, and Ole Miss. Now let's think about those teams, those 13 real undefeated teams. Clemson had to go to double OT to beat Wake Forest. Sam Hartman from Wake Forest is really good. He'd be the second best quarterback in the Big Ten. But And Clemson had some injuries in the secondary and were playing a bunch of young guys. But guess what? Ohio State had some injuries in the secondary against Wisconsin. We're playing a bunch of young guys, and it didn't matter. Clemson could not stop Sam Hartman. They're supposed to have a great front. They did not get enough pressure to keep him from throwing six touchdown passes. I, I watched most of that game. It was at Wake Forest, but Wake Forest was absolutely as good as Clemson all day. And now Clemson has to play NC State next week, I think. So Clemson very easily could have lost to Wake Forest. NC State earlier this year should have lost to East Carolina. The East Carolina kicker missed an extra point and missed a chip shot field goal. It's a miracle that that NC State's still undefeated. Oklahoma State hasn't really played anybody. They had a goofy like game where Central Michigan came back on them and scored 28 points late in the game and made the score look close, but they they haven't really had a close game. They haven't played anybody. Michigan, and we can have a longer Michigan conversation, played nobody, and then they played Maryland, and Maryland did some stuff. So Michigan didn't look like a world beater the way they had when they were playing you know, the 110th best team in the country. Penn State, I actually think, is pretty good. Now, they didn't dominate Central Michigan, but they were never in doubt you know, it was, they didn't cover, but they're pretty good. Ohio State's good. USC probably should have lost to Oregon State. USC, this is Caleb Williams. This is Lincoln Riley. They beat Oregon State and nobody watched it because on the Pac-12 network. So I haven't watched it. They got the ball back with four and a half minutes left down 14 to 10 and had to drive for the game winning touchdown to beat Oregon state. And again, Oregon state's pretty good. Like Oregon state's like Minnesota. And if, but if Ohio state had to drive with four minutes left for the gate, cause even when Ohio state had to drive on Notre Dame, they were driving to ice the game. USC had to drive to win the game. They were losing with four and a half minutes left. Their first eight possessions against Oregon state, four punts, turn it over on downs, a field goal, a missed field goal and a touchdown. So that's six empty possessions of their first eight against Oregon State, which, again, Jonathan Smith is doing a great job. That's a revived program. Oregon State might be a really solid eight and four team, but USC couldn't score on them with Caleb Williams and Travis Dye and Jordan Addison and Mario Williams and Lincoln Riley is a genius. And I follow some USC people, Nathan. The vibe of from Twitter of the USC people was like, oh, what a gutsy performance by USC. And I was like, that would not be my reaction if Ohio State had to drive in the final four minutes to beat Minnesota 17-14. My reaction would be like, what are they doing? So maybe everybody's just under the uh, under the, the glow of Lincoln Riley. Maybe their standards have been lowered by the Clay Helton experience. But the USC spin is, whew. Way to gut it out where my spin is what I thought you're supposed to be good. So 
I'll keep going through, but I want to stop and take a breath. That's Clemson and USC who we think maybe have the talent and the expectation to be on Ohio State's level. And they both won Saturday, but they should have lost against solid conference opponents. But come on, it's Wake Forest and Oregon State, man. What are we talking about? So even within the the realm of the 13 real undefeated teams, that's two that were that escaped by the skin of their teeth. And I think people should remember that too, that it's what we've seen through four games, I think is a, what we, we even, we talked about it coming into the year about there being like this triumvirate at the top, right? The three teams at the top, it seemed like they're really really, And it was like, who was going to be the fourth team? And, or at least that was maybe like, you know, conventional wisdom, right? That of what, sure. what was, I don't know if we all three of us agreed on that, but that was the conventional wisdom throughout the just people who observe college football. And I think that that's probably been borne out because I still see a separation between Alabama and the teams that I have in the next tier, which is Penn state, Michigan, USC, Clemson um, partially because I think I just, I, maybe I give them more credit for winning for beating Texas than other people do because Texas wasn't ranked at the time. Whereas Notre Dame was ranked at the time, but now, you, you, you again, it, the, the, those things change over impressions change over time. But it's interesting you brought up USC too, because I would argue that Stanford, Fresno State, Oregon State, those are all better wins than anybody that Ole Miss has beaten. Yeah, probably. No, I think I think that's true. But again, when you're when you're barely beating, I thought they. I mean, their win against Fresno State, I thought was was pretty good. You know, and, and Stanford, Stanford, they controlled that game the whole time. They they were only favored by like nine points against Stanford, and they kind of handled their business there. Um, so keep going. Washington, I think Washington actually might be good. But again, Washington is good because Michael Penix is their quarterback, and Ohio State fans know what Michael Penix is, the former Indiana quarterback who did some stuff against Ohio State. But if that's the thing, oh, what's making – Washington good. Well, they have Michael Penix and they have Kalen DeBoer, who once upon a time was the Indiana offense coordinator. I think he might be a good coach, but does Washington scare anybody? I think they have a chance to be good, but I don't know if anyone's scared right now. Then you have Georgia, then you have Kentucky and Tennessee that we talked about. Will Levis and Hendon Hooker are guys that the NFL is going to look at as quarterbacks. Mark Stoops does a really good job at Kentucky. They've been, they've been coming for a while. Tennessee was in the toilet. And they got some stuff figured out. They have some talent there. And then Ole Miss, as you said, listen, Lane Train, it's a little soft right now. I know that was one of my, my preseason picks in July on the College Football Survivor Show was like over seven and a half on Ole Miss because I just think I think Lane Kiffin knows how to win games against average teams. And then, you know, last year when they I thought they I thought they were in that stretch against Bama last year when Bama played a couple tough teams and Kiffin went forward on fourth down a bunch in the first half and didn't make it. And they, they took themselves out of the game before they had a chance. But again, you know, they, they lost Matt Corral. They got Jackson Dart as a transfer from USC. They replaced some people. He has, you know, a pretty good offensive game plan. So, and then Bama almost lost to Texas. So the, so the, the main thing that I'm, is the, the threshold here and Georgia had the weird result against Kent state this week, the first week of the year, Ohio state did not dominate Notre Dame. And then Notre Dame went out and lost to Marshall. And then Notre Dame went out and almost lost to Cal. And it was sort of, well, what's going on here? How could Ohio State not dominate this Notre Dame team that doesn't look very good? Now, you have to keep in mind, 
that Notre Dame's starting quarterback got hurt, and now they're on to the backup. And that was when they lost to Marshall because Tyler Buckner got hurt in that game, and they had to go to Drew Pine. And so Notre Dame also was not quite the team that played Ohio State, right? Because they think they're better with Tyler Buckner, and now he's not playing. Just like Texas, Texas loses to Texas Tech. Well, they're playing backup quarterback Hudson Card, who's hurt himself, where Texas with Quinn Ewers, that's the team that Bama played. Right. So it's now now you look and say, oh, well, Bama almost lost to Texas, but now Texas, how good? It's like, well, this isn't the real Texas. So Ohio State and Georgia are at the top. I think Clemson, USC and Bama, right, are right there. Clemson, USC and Bama all have games where they were much closer to losing than Ohio State was against Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anybody has to apologize for questioning Ohio State after the Notre Dame game. But as everything in the country contextualizes through four weeks, Ohio State is absolutely number two, has a case for number one, and Clemson, USC, and Bama will walk around saying, thank God we're still undefeated. There's only 19 teams that are among the Power 65. Only 13 of them are real. And I will tell you, man, when you start going through this, Michigan, Minnesota, and Penn State look kind of as real as anybody because you can see – I want to have a little Minnesota conversation. Let's have it right now. That's, so that's the national picture that I wanted to lay out for people, Nathan. How many undefeated teams there are, how many of the undefeated teams are actually really undefeated, and how many of those real undefeated teams were on a razor's edge of losing, much closer than Ohio State. I think we people should understand that now to, the, to this point – that, yes, Ohio State, you know, without the miracle sideline throw by C.J. Stroud to Mayan Williams, who knows how that game would have gone. But Clemson should have lost to Wake. USC almost lost to Oregon State. And Bama should have lost to Texas. And the other thing that happens, too, and it's interesting you brought up Washington and then the Minnesota conversation, because in both cases, it comes down to Michigan State. Like, part of their resume is beating Michigan State. And Washington did it at home. Minnesota went into Michigan State and won this past week. And what we're seeing happen is whether you're going by just your own analysis of a team that you watch or read about or look at the stats or whatever, or whether you're using a different source, and actually almost sometimes more if you're trying to use an objective source, whether that's the the Football Outsiders F-plus stuff, whether that's like power rankings, like T-Shoes power rankings. I mean, I try to look at various things like that. Michigan State is still looks like a very quality win for teams like that. But every week that goes by, you pull a little bit more out of their rank, their score, however they come up with a score that was from last year, and they just have to stand on how good the team is this year, and that loss becomes a little bit less impressive, or that win becomes a little bit less impressive each week. And that's the other thing that's sort of happening here as you jumble everything around. But for the, for a team like Ohio State, the thing that they always have, I think, going for them is what we're starting to see these last two weeks is, and especially the, the the Wisconsin game. There aren't that many teams, and Georgia with Oregon is one of the other ones. I'm not saying that Wisconsin is good as Oregon. In fact, I don't think they are. But when you're on, when you're against another Power Five legitimate program and you blow them off the field, that counts a little extra, and that's something that yeah. they're always going to have in their resume now. And they're probably it's probably not going to be the only example of that before the end of the year. And I do think, I, I mean, I always try to 
think of this. I think a team like Michigan State's a good example. A team like South Carolina, I think, is a good example. I don't know what they're ranked. They're going to lose some games. They're going to win some games. They're going to maybe, you know, they're going to have up years and down years. But they are a competent, moderately talented, competently coached power conference team. And when you beat them, it counts for something. That beating Michigan State, even like if Rutgers and Michigan State have the same record, I still think it's, I mean, like beating Michigan State still means something. Beating South Carolina still means something. You know, Peyton Thorne's still at Michigan State. Spencer Rattler and Austin Stogner or whatever, like, are at South Carolina. Like, they have, they have some dudes, you know? So you beat a good team with a highly paid coach with some dudes, you still get credit for that on some level. And I don't want to get too tied up and well, you know, that Michigan state might lose to this team down the road. Maybe they'll only be six and six this year. So I do think, do we think the big 10 again, four undefeated teams for the big tens, five for the sec, four for the ACC and big 10, three for the big 12 and pac 12. Is that our top four in the big 10? Like if we were doing big 10 power rankings, would it be Ohio state, Michigan, Penn state, Minnesota, Minnesota again is like, very highly ranked uh, statistically because they are sort of taking it to people. Um, they are in offensive yards per play. They're fourth in, in the big 10 and in defensive yards per play, they're fourth in the big 10, but I think they have a big uh, time of possession or they must be holding the ball because like they're first in overall like yards per game, but then per play they're behind some other teams, but they seem competent on both sides of the ball. Tanner Morgan is back for year 11 as a starting quarterback. And this is the difference of, I don't know that anybody underestimated it, but the Mo Ibrahim loss for him to get injured in the, op- in the opener against Ohio state last year, just completely changed their season. He he's as good. I think he's as good. I don't know that he's better, but I think he's as good as anybody in the big 10 at running back. And that includes Trayvon Henderson, Mayan Williams, Braylon Allen and Blake Corum, right? And he makes that go. They have a veteran quarterback. And the other guy, what's the guy's name? Their receiver. Um, Chris Ottman Bell, he just got Chris, hurt. Chris Ottman Bell. But he, like, for if because, again, I think it's okay to think of things in an Ohio State context because this is an Ohio State audience. He was hurt at the beginning of last year, too. And I think it was even like a game-time decision. He didn't play against Ohio State. So their best receiver, their best running back, One didn't play against Ohio State in the opener. One got hurt during the game against Ohio State in the opener. But this, so this Minnesota team is more talented maybe than Buckeyes fans would realize. I mean, listen, people saw the first half of that game in last season, right? I mean, and that was still a very young CJ Stroud. That was Ohio State not having, you know, having to throw some some inexperienced guys out there at corner and it cost them in that game. But still, like there was it was more talent equated than I think people might have expected. The thing that has changed for Minnesota is I didn't respect their defense very much going into that game and even certainly coming out and their defense has improved. Like they've become a more like respectable defense over the past season. Like by the end of, excuse me, by the end of last year, they were actually putting up some okay defensive numbers again, relative to the big 10 West. And that, that's given them a little bit of stability. They don't have to go out and try to win everything in a shootout. They can more conventionally go out and take a team like Michigan State and kind of run them into the ground as they did. So, yeah, this would be these are the only four Big Ten teams I voted for, voted for. They're actually the only four Big Ten teams that anybody voted for this week. There were no Big Ten teams getting votes. So no Michigan State after their back-to-back losses, no 
I don't know, like no Wisconsin kind of around there. Yeah. No Wisconsin, certainly. Um, no Iowa. Uh, so it's just been it's just those four. And we don't want to oversell Minnesota. Thirty-eight nothing against New Mexico State. Sixty-two to ten against Western Illinois. Forty-nine to seven against Colorado. That's a Power Five win, but Colorado, I think, is in the battle Awful. to be the worst Power Five team. And Michigan State, thirty-four to seven. But again, statistically, right now, just yards per game. Minnesota is third in the nation in offense and first in defense. They are dominating. They are rolling it up and not giving it up. So there's, yes, you can only play who you play, but they are absolutely steamrolling people. They go, they, they host Purdue this week. Then they have a bye week then at Illinois at Penn state. And then it's the West man. So like, I don't know what to tell you. The West is the West. There are three crossovers, Michigan state. They just beat then at Penn state and Rutgers. So we, this is, you know, they don't play Ohio state in the regular season. This might be the team that Ohio state would be facing in the big 10 championship game. And um, you know, PJ flex done a good job there and they have a veteran quarterback. I have many times have not believed in Tanner Morgan because when they were good in 2019, they had two NFL receivers, right? They had Tyler Johnson and Rashad Bateman. And then once those guys were gone, uh, it didn't look the same in 2020 and 2021. But I will tell you just right now, early against bad competition, in 2019, uh, Tanner Morgan averaged 10.2 yards per attempt. 2020, it was 7.5. That's a huge drop-off. 2021, it was 8.2. This year, it's 11.2. So it's higher than it was in 2019, again, against bad competition. But if they're getting some stuff going in the passing game, they have a real dude at running back. So you can see how the pieces there might have something to it. But, but by the way, bad competition, like New Mexico State is basically just funding its athletic department for the next year by getting crushed by Big Ten teams because they also played Wisconsin and got uh, flattened. And then Colorado is so bad that, uh, somebody uh, had a video clip on Twitter of during the game the other day, um, the mascot was playing solitaire in the end zone with like a big deck of cards <laughs> while the, with the Colorado mascot while Colorado was getting shellacked by whoever they played this past weekend. It's kind of disrespectful. What's up? What's up? <laughs> What's up? It's a Buffalo, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Does, does a Buffalo even have opposable thumbs that could pick up a card, a playing card? I think that's, I think that's why they went extinct. Are they just hoofing it around? They're just hoofing it around the board. It's like, I don't know. I don't know what card I have. I can't flip it over because I have a hoof. That would be frustrating. I'm glad I don't have hooves. I say that all the time. Oh, I'm so glad I don't have hooves. Okay. So that's the national scene. Ohio State's place in it is pretty good. And I think the Big Ten's place in it is pretty good just for a little bit of context for the people who don't listen to the college football survivor show. And I would recommend you trying it out. You find it wherever you find Buckeye talk every week. My co-host and I, Shahanjay Haraja, we kick a team out of our playoff discussion. And then we add a team uh, to our playoff discussion last week. So, you know, before this past weekend, we added Penn state to the playoff discussion. So, we think that what Penn State was doing with wins at Purdue and win a win at Auburn, that was two power five road wins. That was, there's not a lot of teams that have that this early in the season. We thought that was real enough. We know their defense is good. It feels like they have some playmakers. You know, it's not a bad top four. 
it's it's really not for the Big Ten. It's not a bad top four. I want to just do a little bit on Michigan here before we dig in on Ohio State in the second segment. I watched most of the Michigan game. It was a nice noon, um, nice relaxing noon window with Clemson Wake Forest and Maryland Michigan. I was just flipping back and forth between those two games. JJ McCarthy is wild, man. Ooh, man. It is the Tate Martell experience come to Ann Arbor. Like that's if you're like, oh, I wonder what it would have been like. That's what it would have been like. He had a play on a third down run where he he must have held the ball for 10 seconds and he wound up running like 11 yards on third and nine and making something out of nothing and picking up a first down. And then he had two other plays where he held the ball, held the ball, held the ball and fumbled like for no reason. It's not like he got crushed. He was just loose with the ball and he wouldn't get rid of it. It has to be driving Jim Harbaugh crazy, but now Cade McNamara is hurt. They've got to, they've got to get him under control while not completely taking away sort of that slipperiness and that playmaking that again, I think would come in very, very handy in Columbus against this Ohio State defense. But they certainly did not, you know, Talia Tonga Bailoa made some mistakes, but Maryland gave Michigan a free touchdown by fumbling the opening kickoff. And Maryland hung around most of the game. It was a good performance by Maryland. It was at Michigan. And Michigan's defense looked good, I thought, Nathan. They weren't completely destroying the opposing offense like they had for the first three games. But I think it it was a reminder that Michigan didn't play anybody in the non-conference. And credit to them for taking care of business against a Maryland team that I think is pretty solid. But the McCarthy thing, I, I'm very curious how that's going to work itself. He's, he's, he's the starting quarterback. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But they've got to they've figure out some give and take with him here it's a little bit like learning to drive and your dad just like takes you to the empty school parking lot and lets you just drive a big square around the school parking lot. That's basically what they were doing for the first three weeks, Colorado state, Hawaii, Yukon. That's, that's a college football parking lot. You're just driving over for three weeks. And then Maryland is like the first time you have to drive in town with like stop signs and turn lanes and one way streets and other cars on the road. And so it was a little bit sketchy, but it, I agree with you that I, I don't know that it is going, it's the thing that will cost them a game at some point, unless this was sort of a wake up call, unless this is the game that now you go into film, you reevaluate and you say, do you see this that you didn't see the first three weeks? Well, this is what it's going to be from now on. This is, this is the baseline that you have to work off of. It isn't the, the, the ghosts that you were playing in the first three weeks. I think he hit a parking meter. He didn't hurt anybody, but he hit a parking meter. Joel Clad, our guy was on the call with Gus Johnson for that game. And, and Joel was talking a lot about sort of the lack of rhythm with the Michigan offense. As we know, Josh Gaddis, the offensive coordinator is now at Miami where they have no rhythm on the offense. And they benched the starting quarterback as Miami lost to Middle Tennessee State the week after losing to Texas A&M. So there's another like, hey, is Miami going to be something? Nope, not near one of Mario Cristobal. They're not ready. But Josh Gaddis left Michigan to go to Miami. It didn't look great in Miami, but it felt like they didn't have that offensive rhythm. That last year, one of the best things about Michigan was they weren't great at throwing it, but they were still diverse and they were rhythmic and they hit you inside and outside with different people, with different styles of attack in the run game. And I thought Josh Gaddis did a great job with that. And now they're sort they're sharing the co- the coordinator duties with Matt Weiss, the quarterback's coach and Sharon Moore, 
uh, the offensive line coach. They're kind of splitting the duties and it didn't have the same rhythm to it. Blake Corum is really good. And Donovan Edwards has been out. He's the number two running back, borderline five-star recruit that Ohio State looked at, second-year guy. I think he's really important to them. Their best tight end was out last week, right? So I I think they felt the effects of that because that takes away, I think, some of the options because they don't have a pure go-to guy other than the handball to Corum. Roman Wilson, Ronnie Bell, Cornelius Johnson, different guys in the passing game. But they want to throw it to Donovan Edwards. They want to throw it to the tight ends. So they, they felt the absence of those guys. But they're adjusting, and this is a coordinator discussion, a lot of coordinator movement in major college football this offseason. A lot of similarities, I think, between what happened at Clemson and what happened at Michigan, and you're feeling it right now. Michigan is certainly they're feeling their way, but it's a little bit like you have these conversations. You know, the San Francisco 49ers were having this conversation with Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo before Trey Lance got hurt. It's like, well, who, who are you better with right this second, and who gives you the ceiling? J.J. McCarthy gives them a ceiling they don't have with Cade McNamara. But they made the playoff with Cade McNamara, and then they couldn't compete with Georgia. If they want to compete, right, if they want to compete at the highest, highest, highest level, and especially if they don't have an A-plus defense like they did last year, they need J.J. McCarthy. But right now, I think they were wishing they had a little Cade McNamara in their lives on Saturday because J.J. McCarthy at times was wild. You did not know what that man was doing. So monitor that. It will matter. It will. The, I mean, if we did a thing right now, if we did it the bye week, Nathan, the 10 players, not in, the 10 people, not on Ohio State's roster who matter most to the Ohio State football season. J.J. McCarthy is top five. He might be top three and he might be number one. So I th- that progress really matters. Is that am I being putting too much on that or off the top of our heads? Is that what we think that might be? No, I mean, it's because nothing that happened with Michigan last year was a, a step forward for the Big Ten as a whole. Um, you know, Ohio State is the team that can get to the playoff and win games, and everybody else in the conference can maybe once in a while get to a playoff and then quickly go home. Uh, it's only happened, even that has only happened a couple times. But, like, we go down the list, like Michigan State at its best. Michigan last year. Wisconsin, when it is good enough to get to the Big Ten championship game, but that's where it always ends. Iowa. I mean, for God's sake, Iowa, like none of those teams has the quarterback play that separates themselves. I, I mean, I thought that was one of the big contrasting things between Ohio State and Wisconsin is just the absolute chasm that there is between the two levels of quarterback play at these two programs. They're supposed to be at the top of their respective divisions in, in this conference. So, no, I don't I don't think it's saying too much like this. The, it's a short window, man. Like McCarthy's already in the second year you don't get five stars that actually hit all the time. You can't just assume that's going to happen. You know, Graham Mertz was like a top 75 guy. That's just not going anywhere at Wisconsin. And Michigan's had other really highly ranked guys that just didn't uh, turn into anything. So the window here is short. Yeah. I mean, or Brandon Peters that is ended up at Illinois. Like it's the, the window's short. So you got this year and you've got next year. And if it hasn't happened by then, it probably isn't going to happen. So I, I, it's it's early. They were I, they, he was part of why they had blown those other teams off the field those first three. But I think we saw two things. Number one, yeah, he was exposed a little bit, and now it's a matter of how do you mold him over these next eight weeks. And but also Maryland's not bad. No, Maryland's not. Maryland's Maryland would be right in it in the West, right in it, right in it. Yeah, 
people would be anticipating that Maryland Minnesota game for supremacy of the West. I think if Maryland was out there. All right, when we By come way, back, real, real, yeah. real, real quick. Um, like I was saying, Sunday is always just a deluge of people who disagree with who you did or didn't vote for. And one of the things people are hitting me for is I had Penn State fourth on my ballot this week. And the, it got shared on the Reddit thing. There's a Reddit page that just like puts everybody's ballot on like one big graphic. And once that gets out on Sunday, there's like a new round of people being like, what's up with this guy? And people were saying like, what's this deal? Penn State, number four. Are you like Penn State's biggest fan? And then for the first time that I can remember ever, there were just like random strangers coming in and being like, well, wait a second. Like, let's look at these numbers. There were like three different people who were on there like, you know, they're like number four on the Massey index and number four on the old BCS ratings. And like, maybe he's just ahead of the curve on how good Penn State is. I'd never had that happen before. We're just like people come out of the woodwork and not like not like hundreds, but a handful. Because and, and, usually it's just random people telling you you're an idiot. This time it was random people saying, I'm not saying he's not an idiot. I'm just saying there actually might be something to this. No, that's good. That's good because that does happen a lot. Because if you go by results early and people are like, well, results, but it's not what I thought in August. And then you can just say, okay, that's fine. You're going to be with me in three more weeks, right? When And, and it's just going to be, it's not going to be that I was wrong is that you were late. And listen, if they lose, they lose. And then they won't be fourth on your ballot anymore. But by results, and I think some you can then within the results make some statistical arguments about what they do defensively and offensively and that kind of thing. I think I think it's very reasonable. Again, would they have gone to double overtime with Wake Forest? Or would they have maybe handled their business better? I don't know because you don't have to live in hypotheticals. Right. But the idea that like, well, of course, Clemson should be fourth and putting Penn State fourth is crazy. It's like, don't they kind of recruit the same? Don't they kind of have the same like talent level at the skill positions? Like, what are we talking about? What's the difference between Will Shipley and Nicholas Singleton? I don't know. All right. When we come back, we're going to dig in a little bit more on Ohio State. Nathan, rewatched, has some thoughts. We'll do it next on Buckeye Talk. All right. Doug and Nathan back. 614-350-3315 is how you can be a tech subscriber. And we certainly would appreciate it if you would find your way to cleveland.com slash OSU. If you're mostly just a podcast person, you could bookmark cleveland.com slash OSU. We do have an app, right, Nathan? We have an app in the app store where you can have like the cleveland.com Ohio State app, which then the story is just flow. So you could get that and put that on your phone. And then you can read all of our stories. Or you can bookmark cleveland.com slash OSU. Or you just can say to yourself, you know what I'm going to do? Every day at lunch, I'm just going to go to cleveland.com slash OSU and see what's up. See if there's an interesting story that I want to breeze through. Uh, maybe while you're on the John, it's a great place to read. I don't know. Have people ever thought of that before, Nathan? I don't know. Do people do that? Is it just me? I, I, uh, I hermetically seal my phone in another room before I go into the bathroom. I would never think of taking it. Away. Yeah. Have you ever thought about it. how we should, you should never touch anyone else's phone ever for any reason. Oh yeah. Cause where that phone has been and what that phone has seen. Oh my God. <laughs> If only if, if a phone could write a book, I should. Uh, now that I have this baby, uh, you're, you got the diaper bag all the time and it's got a little pouch for the um, what would I say, like the wipes, like the, the sanitary wipes. And I sh- you should everyone should just walk around with those. So if someone ever hands you your phone, you like put on a pair of rubber gloves and like wipe it off first. Oh, that'd be good. 
I thought you were going to say he got the diaper bag and it's got the little pouch for the baby's phone. Not yet. I, the, I don't. I don't think you get a baby a phone until they're like. Two. I think it's. I think it's a yeah. It's a good first birthday present. Uh, all right. You rewatched Ohio State. What were you looking for? Well, I was looking for a couple things. I, I was reminded of the was it last year's Indiana game where you kind of went in depth on the the Micah McFadden situation, who is the, the linebacker for Indiana and how Ohio State had sort of neutralized him. He was like the one defensive player on that Indiana team that anyone had any real concern about because the cornerback was hurt. And um, I want to do the same thing with Nick Harbig. So that was a guy that I voted for him, number one preseason Big Ten Player of the Year on the Cleveland.com annual poll. Um, I think Steven might have as well, or he was high on his ballot. Maybe it was on your – no, you did. Was he on your ballot also? Yeah, I think Um, he – I might have had him first too. I think you did. Um, and he finished second to the linebacker from uh, Iowa, Jack uh, Campbell. Campbell. I always, I always start to say Jack Lambert, and that's not correct, uh, which sounds like a very Iowa name in some ways. But um, so I wanted to see – when I was thinking back, I was like, I don't know that I remember that guy doing literally anything. Yeah. Like, he was not a factor in any way in this game. And I went back and just went through and I only watched up to where it was 28 to nothing because that was the game. In fact, I did also pinpoint the the game. It's fourth and one Wisconsin down 21 to nothing and has fourth and one at its own 44 and punts. And they should have just shut the lights off and sent everybody home. Like that was the game. Like, what are you doing? Like, like I know that you're Wisconsin and maybe you're trying to just not be embarrassed, but like if you can't get a yard when you're already down 21 to nothing to a team that you know is going to put up another three touchdowns before the end of the night. What do you just, what are you doing? When you're Wisconsin, when you have Braylon Allen, you're the one team that should think we can get a yard against anybody because you're like the Browns. Kevin Stefanski goes for it a lot on fourth down. You know why? Because he has Nick Chubb and Kareem hunt and a great offensive line. And the run game is their identity. If you can't get a yard, don't come here. Just stay home and send in uh, we think we probably would have lost by 30. We'll the save reason, the airline airline fuel. The other reason coaches go for it on fourth down is because analytically it's the right call a lot of times. And it's funny to me that there's a lot of coaches who I think will believe in the analytics 95% of the time, except when it comes to fourth down decisions. And then because you don't want to be the guy who doesn't go, who goes for it and doesn't get it. And now you put your team in a bad position or whatever. Because it is one of those things. Do you think to yourself, well, I don't want to give an offense like Ohio State's the ball. 45 yards from the end zone and then you punt and you punt at the end zone and on their first play they throw a 30-yard pass to Marvin Harrison Jr. and they're right where they would have been if you would have gone for it. Ohio State can gain 30 yards without even trying. Who cares if you give them the ball 45 yards or 75 yards from the end zone? It actually there's no difference. It's a one play difference. Go for it, Paul. It's called Christing. Oh, oh, he Christed it. I was going to go for it on fourth and one, but then I thought why would I? I christed it. The difference is you can actually get the ball back faster if you just give them the ball to your own 45 That's every time. So uh, I, anyway, we I, I wonder I wonder if uh, Colton Bartholomew, who's a good Wisconsin beat writer, had a good recap of there was miscommunication on the initial interception. It was an option route, and you're reading the coverage and which shoulder the defender is off of for the receiver, and Mertz thought the receiver would kind of break inside and the receiver broke outside. So there it's, you know, it's an option route where 
he he was explaining only because that receiver is experienced and veteran and has a relationship with merch to even give him routes like that. And they, they read it and they read it opposite. And that's why that throw was behind him. But there was a lot of other things. I don't know that I, I didn't go to Wisconsin post game. I don't know if Paul Chris got asked about a fourth down or maybe the Wisconsin beat is like asking Paul Chris why he didn't go on fourth and one. I mean, what is the point of that? It's fourth down and on fourth down, you Chris it. You punt, man. What are you talking about? So maybe it wasn't even an issue. Yeah, I, I don't know. I actually did. I should have meant to check back on that, too, to see if it did come up. But honestly, it sometimes gets buried in a 55 to 21 game. And it wouldn't have made their 52 21. And it would have made the difference in the game, probably. But it they had no chance once they did that because they punted away there. Ohio State goes down, scores now. It's 28 to nothing. And it's forget about it. Uh, but anyway, uh, the Nick Harbig thing. So he really did like up through these this point of the game. And this is through, you know, four series on each side. Um, He had done literally nothing. And it was kind of a masterclass of a couple things. One was that Ohio State did a good job of they know that he's coming off of the edge a lot. You know, they line up with just the three down linemen and he's coming off the edge as almost a stand up defensive end in in a lot of cases. But there were either they were just running away from him on those plays or I thought there were a couple where Stroud just did a good job making, you know, r- recognizing where that was coming from and knowing that because he knows that's coming, that it now his priority is this guy over here away from the away from the pressure, a quick pass. You can get it out and, and still get yardage. I thought there were a couple of those. But more to the point, it, it was a really great night for both Dewan Jones, who was the guy primarily dealing with him. Once in a while, they flipped him around to the other side, but a lot of times he was coming off of what would have been the left side for the defense, right side for the offense. And it was just Dewan Jones's responsibility to push him out. And he did it. And then Cade Stover too was really instrumental. If it wasn't something where Dewan Jones was just taking him as a matter of the play design, a lot of times it was Cade Stover's coming in motion. And then he's the one that engages with Harbig. There was just nothing for him to do most of this night. And there were several plays where Iowa State scores a touchdown. And then, like, you see Harvig kind of coming out of the back of the play, just sort of, like, walking over with his hands up. Like, eh, it was nowhere near him. There was nothing he could do. And it was the the one guy who you thought could maybe be a difference maker for Wisconsin. And unlike what we've talked about on offense for Wisconsin, where we kind of questioned, what what were they doing? Like, where, where were they challenging Ohio State? I don't know what they were supposed to do with Harbig that would have really made a difference in this game. They were just because of the approach that Ryan day had taken where they spread that defense out from sideline to sideline and made people make plays in space when they knew Ohio state had definitely a speed advantage and actually probably a toughness advantage and strength advantage in a lot of those cases. Harbig wasn't going to impact a game that was played that far away from the line of scrimmage. And listen, I don't know off the top of my head who the best edge rusher in the Big Ten on Ohio State schedule will be. I'm not going to try to say anything. But just like we talk, you know, like Daquan Finn, what's he, does he get you ready for something? The Toledo quarterback. That might be, I mean, even if it's 20%, is it a 20% approximation of maybe at least what some part of the game plan would be against Will Anderson? or against somebody from the Clemson defensive line or against, you know, some Georgia dude that's tearing off the edge, right? That what did you do? There's an edge rusher who can be good. And what happened? They had a plan with a really physical right tackle and a really physical tight end that 
eliminated him. So it's there's no comparison there, but at least there's the process. There's the process of edge guy on a, again, statistically highly ranked defense. What do you do? And Ohio State owned it. So these little things that the matchups within this matter. And I think the plan this week is for us um, to talk to Tim Walton, the cornerbacks coach. And I do think that we have both young corners, uh, Jair Brown and J.K. Johnson on the list to talk to this week. And that will be great to get all of those guys talking about. We did this on the postgame pod that those young corners, as Ryan Day said, they had no fear. And it felt like they did their jobs and everybody had their back. And it's going to be great to be able to talk to their coach and those two players about that. But I would like to, we'll have to keep this in mind. I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk to Justin Fry, the offensive line coach, but it feels like they're doing a lot of things really well on the offensive line. But they certainly, if this was a test, Nathan, even if it was a, maybe it's a pretest, right? It's like the thing you take sophomore year to get ready to take junior year when it actually matters as a pretest, you know, they're going to get a medal for this. No, absolutely. I, I, I really, I, I mean, Harbig, you can just look at his numbers the last two years and he's, he's legitimately produced against a, a lot of different offenses and he was neutralized in this game. And there were some other instances where they he comes off of the edge and then just the, the play design or the way that CJ Stroud was selling it just sort of froze him. And again, I'm just looking over like the first four or five series, but like he just, just sort of stops in his track. And just that instant is by the one defensive player on the field who you think could maybe wreck some havoc, getting him to just like pause in his tracks for like a moment. It's over. Like now it's, it's a 10 yard gain to Mecca Buka. It's something else going the other way. It's uh, they just, I thought set him up pretty well. And, uh, but almost to the point where it wasn't quite with the way with McFadden, where it looked like they were really targeting him to try to take him out of things. I thought this was more a case of, because of the way that they approached the game, it they were almost just ignoring him. Like they they knew that it because Wisconsin wasn't really like blitzing him uh, really aggressively, and they could just operate however they wanted to. They could kind of do whatever they wanted to without much regard to what he was going to accomplish. No, and I think that this is one of those things we were kind of having some conversations with some people about C.J. Stroud on the Heisman Trophy and his candidacy and what he does best and how that gets conveyed to the masses. There, as you're explaining here, there are probably things within there that CJ is just recognizing, diagnosing, and just eliminating a problem before it even has a chance to exist, where there might be other quarterbacks who would have taken two sacks in that game because they didn't do that. And it's almost trying to explain he avoided a negative that never happened. And how do you give somebody credit in the Heisman race for that? But you sort of have to try to do that because I think in concert, and I thought Ryan Day called a great game on Saturday night. In concert, I think Ryan Day and C.J. Stroud, they make things look easy. But one of the things they also do, Nathan, is they eliminate problems before they have a chance to be a problem. Well, we're just going to do play design. Okay, we're going to recognize this. CJ, what's your read here? Okay, you've got that. We worked on this. We're going to flip this play. We're going to go the opposite way. Bing, bang, boom. And it's a 30-yard gain, and the guy barely got his hands on Dewan Jones, and the play's over. And Emeka Buka's running down the field. And how many other offenses and quarterbacks are there in college football where against a guy like that, he ends up chasing the guy around? And then maybe the quarterback spins in a circle and makes a great play. 
it almost looks like he makes a cooler play than CJ does because CJ says like, oh no, I got this and it's over. So I think that matters. Um, I just, just real quick on CJ with some stuff right now is the stats update and they have updated. I I think you guys, do you guys know about cfbstats.com? It's a great site, searchable stuff, teams, players by conference, by national stuff. Just go there and dork around. It's fun. Uh, Passing yards per game, 305.5. CJ is 13th in the nation. He's one spot behind Stetson Bennett. The rating system for quarterbacks that this site uses, he's second behind Max Dugan of of TCU. Touchdown passes, he's tied for the national lead with Will, Will Rogers of Mississippi State and Drake May of North Carolina. All three of them have 16. Drake May, who was like a big time recruit, Ohio State looked at him. He's a really good young player. He's also 16 touchdowns, one interception, just like CJ is. Rodgers is uh, 16 touchdowns, three interceptions in the Mike Leach air raid. Yards per attempt, CJ is fourth in the nation at 10.9. J.J. McCarthy is actually first. (laughs) J.J. McCarthy is first at 11.6. Dugan from TCU, 11.4. Tanner Morgan from Minnesota, 11.2. So the Big Big Ten is – is chucking it around, man. And then his his completion percentage is a little lower than it has been at times. 70.5 right now for CJ. That's 20th in the nation. And overall passing yards, 1,222. Uh, that is also 12th. So, you know, 16 touchdowns is pretty good. Um, I don't think any worries on the t- statistical side, but there's just just things that he constantly does every week that I think probably go underappreciated um, because he's so good at thinking the game and he's so good at thinking the game along with his play caller. And it, and the result is a smooth operation. Yeah. And both those touchdowns to Kate Stover were examples of that. That wasn't a guy just hanging out in the pocket, like bouncing around and like going to his third read or, or seeing the first read that's wide open and just putting it on a, an arc to a guy streaking downfield. Both of those were plays that he had to sell. One of those was the one where you've got to let the pressure come to you. I think it might've been like the only pressure Wisconsin got the whole night, which I don't, does that go down as a quarterback pressure when you're like letting the guy yeah, come probably to you? does. Yeah. So, so that's that I'd never thought of that before until today I was watching the game. I was like, wait a second, does he get credit for like a hurry there, even though they wanted him to come so that there would be nobody on that whole third of the field. So they could just throw it to Kate Stover. And then the second one was even more so where they, he actually tucks it and like, looks like he's running it on a bootleg. And those two guys then come up to get him. And then they realize you could see the one safety being like, oh, no, <laughs> like, what can you do? Then he just does the easy toss to, to Kate Silver. But both of those, like you had to go be a football player. Like that was old, that was kind of old school football player a little bit on on executing both those plays. It wasn't just, you know, uh, the Peyton Manning, like, you know, throwing darts somewhere. It was having to sell it and get out there and be a little bit rugged, even in the passing game. All right, anything else from the rewatch that you want to hit on or are we good to move on to talking about chicken fingers? <laughs> Just uh, on defense, I was trying to watch back and figure out, like, I was like, I must have been wrong. Like, we must have missed something. But no, it was like, the, it was, if, if CJ Stroud thought handing off for his own team was boring, it's nowhere near as boring as watching Wisconsin do it. <laughs> There's just nothing here that was, I will say, a talk all week and talk after last game about the the gang tackling and being there in mass and all that stuff. And I thought there were some good examples of that. There was a, a, a 
the Tommy Eichenberg tackle for no gain on the first series, right before the interception, where he like pursued to the edge. And um, I think Sonny Styles was on the field for that play yeah. too. It was closing in. Sonny was in early. Make that. So that was one. There was um, there was one on the, the first play of their second series where Eichenberg gets at TFL, but it was because uh, Tron Vincent had penetrated through and flushed the guy out, and Sawyer is there, Zach Harrison's there, so they were doing all that. But then I saw also just a handful of plays where like you know Tommy Eichenberg just like gets on. Braylon Allen's back and like Braylon Allen can carry him a little bit. Braylon Allen's a big guy, but he gets like a couple extra yards that way, but he just takes him down one-on-one. Um, so there was both the, both the gang tackling element, but then also just some guys making some tackles in space. And if, if there was a, there was a six yard run that Allen had on the second snap of the game, that if steel chambers hadn't missed a tackle, they would have, they wouldn't have even allowed like a first down on the first four Wisconsin series, I think. Um, and then the sack that Jack Sawyer had, which is like the most Jack Jack sack example that we've had so far, where he's just playing in the in the Jack. He's lined up kind of in the in the the gap left of the the nose there, and the snap happens, and then he just waits. He's just sort of like waiting, and then Mertz commits himself a little bit, and somebody somebody had come from the side. I think it was Mike Hall actually had made him step up. As soon as he saw Hall make him step up, now Sawyer's moving and he's just faster than Mertz. He's just a better athlete than Mertz and he's going to get there and get that sack. So we hadn't really seen that maybe to that perfect execution. And that's what we always sort of assumed that the combination of Jack Sawyer and the Jack position was going to be. And that's maybe that I think that's the best example we've seen so far. You know what? Let's run through some snap counts because there's there's some revealing stuff here. And I think people always are curious about this. The, the corners didn't come off the field, man. Jair Brown, 52 snaps, J.K. Johnson, 51. Like they didn't, they just rode with those two guys. They did not need help. They did not try Cam Martinez out there. Those two young corners just went the whole way. Uh, They must have had 50, I guess they had 57 total offensive snaps. They put backups in at the end. Ronnie Hickman, 53. uh, Tommy Eichenberg and Josh Proctor, each 50. uh, Excuse me, Ronnie Hickman, 54. Eichenberg and Proctor, each 53. So those guys, those five guys basically played every meaningful snap. We had had we had done a question on the rapid fire uh, midweek last week, Nathan, about the will linebacker position, and there was a texter who's a little fired up. Why isn't Steel Chambers playing more? Why is it being split with Cody Simon against Wisconsin? Steel Chambers forty eight snaps, Cody Simon sixteen. So I don't know. I guess Jim Knowles must listen to Buckeye talk. You think he does? He's still feeling his way, but he probably listens sometimes, right? <laughs> no, that's a no. Uh, defensive tackles. Teron Vincent, 31 snaps. Mike Hall, 27. Tyleek Williams, 20. Ty Hamilton, 13. Uh, I think that's all of them. Uh, Jerron Cage actually had 20. So pretty equal breakdown of those five guys. Steven had thought maybe there was a lot of Mike Hall. I think just Mike Hall was getting business done when he was out there. But uh, those five defensive tackles, the most played 31, the fewest played 13. So they did kind of work all those guys in. And then we're always looking at the defensive ends and now how that snap count gets divided up. It was Jack Sawyer, 26, Zach Harrison, 24, JT Tumaloa, 21. 
So we had thought maybe Nathan, it was sort of tilting a little bit towards Zach is going to be third in that, but in this game, at least it was JT who was third uh, with those three guys, but really it's, it's really kind of three guys almost equally there. The Tyler Friday played uh, 11 in this game. So I guess no surprises in those snap counts, but again, if you would have told me before the game, do I think Jair Brown is going to play every snap? I would have said no. And he did. So credit to that guy. And does it matter the PFF grade? I don't know. Um, 57.9 is not the world and 49.9 for JK Johnson, but they sure as heck did their jobs as far as letting the Ohio state defense be successful. Yeah. Agreed all around. I did think it was interesting that Tui Maloow, after having started uh, what didn't come in, it's like the third series of this game. Mm. So he did run a little bit longer with Zach Harrison at the start, but, and, and Sawyer, but Sawyer seems like the one I, Sawyer's coming along. Sawyer's starting to Sawyer's, Sawyer's starting to show some things. I think he's starting to, and, and maybe it's what the Jack position is, is bringing out of him a little bit. And maybe he, he'll grow to really embrace that and something he can really uh, fire off of, but you're starting to just see him be, disruptive in a way that I puts him maybe at the top of that list of those three guys, as far as like the impact he's actually having. Yeah, no, that was, um, we at all, I think, right. Didn't we all pick Jack Sawyer to lead this team in sacks, even if we maybe sort of thought that um, he might be third in snaps among the defensive ends, but you can see again, you can see the marriage of player and position and how that's working itself out. Okay, when we come back, this football's done. So if, if you're just a listener who just likes the football stuff, uh, we're done with that. But if you like some of the nonsense, we'll do what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Nathan Baird, do you have time to watch anything? I have watched barely any TV this week for two reasons. Number one, it's just been busy and baby's been a little sick and we just haven't really had TV time. But also... My uh, in-laws were here last week, and my father-in-law installed a ceiling fan in the nursery, and something happened in that process where now the outlets in our living room don't work. That's on the second floor. The outlets on our first floor living room don't work, so we can't watch TV in our living room right now. We have a TV in our bedroom, but uh, so like the thing we will often do, which is like make some dinner and then go in and sit in front of the TV, we haven't been able to do this week. So my TV has been a little bit interrupted. I've been watching a lot of um, one of the things that can also be, it can, it can be kind of a detriment. It's because we are watching TV. It's like, I made time to watch TV. So I'll watch this show. But if I start watching a lot of YouTube, it's like, I'm procrastinating by watching this YouTube, but um, I was digging up a lot of uh, Bo Burnham clips. Are you familiar with Bo Burnham? Yeah. I'm a, I'm yeah. a big fan of Bo Burnham. Um, both from like the stand-up stuff he'd done and like these goofy videos he used to make for himself. And then some of the, the stuff he's done more lately. Um, he made a movie that came out a couple of years ago, eighth grade. That was really good. And he it's was, very in, he was in a uh, promising young woman as like the male lead in that. I don't know if you saw that with um, Carrie Mulligan, but he was really good in that too. I thought it was an interesting piece of casting to, to put someone like him in it. Uh, so I'm a big fan of his and it's just been fun to kind of, that's a good thing about YouTube is that you just sort of get to re-experience these things at the, the drop of a hat. Like when I was c- coming up, people always used to be like, can you believe that like MTV stopped showing 
music videos? Like, what is that channel even about? And I'm like, yeah, of course they did because there's YouTube now. Like, when back in the day, you'd have to like wait for your watch MTV all night and hope that they showed the video you wanted to see. And now I can just go watch it 15 times in a row if I wanted to watch some music video, find young cannibals, whatever. Yeah. Did you have you seen the did you watch the Bo Burnham special he made during the pandemic in his house? Yes, which yeah. was called uh, Inside. Sounds right. Yeah. Something like that. Some catchy songs it's, in there. It's very good. It's very good. Highly uh, so speaking of fathers in law, I a couple of years ago. You did watch Ozark or you did not watch Ozark, the series? I, I watched the we, we talked about the, the finale. Okay. Of those. So we so at the beginning of that series, the first it's the first episode or two, uh, Jason Bateman and Laura Linney, they are a married couple. But Laura Linney is having a relationship outside of her marriage. And there are parts in the show. It, this is a drama, a family drama about drug dealing. And it's like it. But, you know, there's things that happen in a drama. And she's having a relationship outside her marriage, and they are showing her having that relationship outside her marriage. And I was like in my basement at two o'clock in the morning watching Ozark when my in-laws were here. And my father-in-law, who wakes up a lot in the middle of the night, came down the steps and found me in the basement at two o'clock in the morning, right at the part where Laura Lenny was having the relationship outside of her marriage. And... It, it was on the screen. And I was like, oh, this is a drug dealing drama about family relationships and why you shouldn't be. And it's like, it's not that. It's just, it's for dramatic effect. So fathers in law, man, what are you going to do? I'm watching the show. Go ahead. I was trying to remember the name of that actor because I've seen him in a bunch of things and I'm, it's blanking on me who plays that actor. Bruce Altman. Bruce Altman. Yeah. It does, things don't go well for him. So, I mean, that part was fine, but like the, it's like the relations part. It was like, I'm trying to explain to my father-in-law that like, I'm not hiding in the basement at two o'clock in the morning to watch this stuff by myself. So uh, I'm watching this new show on Hulu called reboot, which is, I like this stuff. I'm surprised that as many people like this kind of stuff, but I like shows that are a show about a show being made. So this is another one of those shows shows like that. The premise of this show is there was a sitcom 25 years ago and they are rebooting the sitcom and making it for modern times with the same old cast. So the show is not the reboot. The show is the making of the reboot. So it's all the behind the scene things with the actors, right? It's like that, that second layer of it. And I love the second layer, but I think I'm surprised. I would find I'm annoying. It makes sense that me with my annoying personality would like that layered thing. I think I'm surprised they make as many shows about this as they do, because I would rather watch a show that's about a show being made than watch a show that's just a show. You know what I mean? But I'm so anyway, but it has, I will say, so uh, Keegan, Michael Key, the guy who looks like James Franklin, when he's been in several gentle comedies since Key and Peele stopped doing their thing. And Keegan, Michael Key in a gentle comedy is just could not be more in my zone. So he's just this guy and he's like a Yale trained drama actor who played this sitcom character and he's conflicted about that. And it's just so gentle and warming. It's by the director, like the creator of Modern Family. It just it just scratches my gentle humor bone. And my gentle humor bone needs scratching during football season 
because I just want to watch a 22 to 25 minute sitcom that I don't have to think about. And if that means that I have to have the office on in the background so that it's to watch an episode that I've seen 36 times, great. But I would rather watch a show that I haven't seen before. But sometimes the gentle humor, there's there's not enough scratching of my gentle humor bone. So I'm so happy to have this show. It's not earth shattering. It's it's fine. It's lovely. It's not hilarious. But you get a couple chuckles out of it. It has a bunch of famous people in it. Paul Reiser's in it. I mean, it's just uh my demographic my gentle humor middle-aged man demographic it's just it's so satisfying and that's all it is is it spectacular no it's satisfying it's satisfying though and i'm satisfied when i watch it but really those shows about shows are just workplace comedies it's just like the office or parks and rec because it's never really they don't really show you the show it's more about the shenanigans that are going on behind the scenes of the show so whether that's Larry Sanders show or whether that's uh, the studio 60 on a sunset strip, the Sorkin thing after West wing that didn't really take off. Uh, I had some problems, but it was okay. Or like the newsroom, another Sorkin thing. Like those are all, uh, I, I like those shows too, because they, at the end of the day, they're not really about the newsroom actually was a little bit more about what they were actually doing on the air, I guess. But yeah. So, uh, all right. What you eating? You eating anything? Oh, so many things. Uh, none of them good. And speaking of which, so we've talked before about, uh, I don't know if people have, have if it's first time listening to, to Buckeye Talk, we've mentioned fast food on here a few times. Mm. And um, I think I've extolled the virtues of McDonald's breakfast, which is not exactly a, uh, a, a deserted island to be standing on, like a lot of people love the McDonald's breakfast. But they recently brought back the the bag the bagels sandwiches oh my mcdonald's there's like a giant banner outside bagels yeah. are back yeah which i had i it was one of those things where like i didn't realize that this was missing from my life i had forgotten about the bagels a little bit and or i just had like this faint reminiscence in the back of my head but the last time a couple times ago we were driving through there because it's a thing we're a very mcdonald's breakfast family as we're leaving to go somewhere it's like we have to we we drop off the dog to get uh boarded and then we stopped by mcdonald's and get on the interstate and go to wherever we're going and i was mad at myself because i have this i've been ordering from the mcdonald's app recently oh i haven't used the app yet is it hard no it's very simple and you get okay. like deals and like points and stuff and but i was mad because i like oh i just got the app and like ordered my stuff real quick and then we get in the line uh you still have to go through the drive through you just tell them your number and i see on the thing like oh the bagels are back and i'm like well now i'm an idiot like if i just waited and ordered at the thing i'd be eating a bagel right now a bagel sandwich so but then this last time i remembered to just look for the bagel on the app this is riveting podcasting to look for the bagel on the app and so, so I there i am my, my i'm looking on the, <laughs> looking for the bagel on the app and all of a sudden no Okay, keep going. My, my, my steak, egg, and cheese bagel. So I, I had one, and it was exactly as delicious as I remember. I also need my my bagel bone scratched, a gentle bagel story. Scratches my bagel bone. I'm very happy to hear. But here's the thing. We have a bagel place near us. It's like, you know, it's like it's good bagels. Are I mean, they're just frozen bagels. Are they good bagels at McDonald's? They're f- fine bagels. It's more that you're getting the other like greasy, cheesy, meaty yeah. experience at McDonald's within the bagel. Um, so I, I, if I need a bagel, if I'm, if my fix that I want is a bagel or really, if my fix is like a bagel sandwich and I'm not in a car, I'm going to blocks bagels up 
just up the road here in Bexley. It's fantastic. <laughs> I didn't grow up around like I grew up in a bean field. Like there weren't like bagel places, and uh, but like I, it's it's been a recent addition of my life just these last couple of years to be like, oh, that's our bagel place. Like that, that's where we go. Yeah, it's when good to have a bagel like, place. Yeah, yeah, like when we're having people over for like Thanksgiving, we've had family like staying with us, or whatever. We like go get a bunch of bagels, so there's breakfast in the morning. Yeah, the thing about McDonald's is they've invented. A, a sandwich where they inject syrup into part of the sandwich. That to me, that's science. That's space age to me. So it's hard for me to get away. Like, why would I leave the McGriddle? I don't know. Do they have people with, with syringes full of syrup sitting in the back, just injecting syrup into like a pancake bun? It's, I mean, it is, it's like the internet, indoor plumbing and McGriddles on um, the greatest inventions of, of my lifetime. Uh, I guess indoor, indoor plumbing was before my lifetime. So anyway, like I, I, it's hard, it would be hard for me to get to bagels at McDonald's. Do you go to Wendy's for breakfast ever? The Wendy's breakfast is very good. They have very good potatoes. They're side potatoes. I don't eat the McDonald's hash browns. The Wendy's yeah, breakfast potatoes are very good. So I, I would I was, point you that way if you're I interested. don't remember if I've ever had Wendy's breakfast. I'm actually trying to remember if I've ever had a McGriddle. Oh, oh, I know what we're I talking about next week. I don't, I don't like sticky. Oh, it's not sticky. Like to get my it's fingers inside. Sticky. It's inside. It's inside. The syrup is inside. It's protected. Your fingers are protected. The syrup only gets in your mouth, not in your fingers. Well, but then the the world's case. finest minds figure this out. It's not like it's dipped in syrup. Oh, you got to try it. I'll pay for it. I'll give you two bucks. Put it on your app. Go get a McRiddle. Um, so, I remain excited that Ohio State has green vegetables in the press box every week. Mm-hmm. It, they're, they're keeping sports writers alive. I was the Football Writers Association of America president a couple of years ago during the pandemic. I was, no doubt about it, hands down, the worst president in the history of the organization. But if I had been even 1% competent, I legitimately was going to try to have, maybe have one of my things be, can college football press boxes try to have healthy food for the sports writers and like, we'll pay for it, but it's just, you can't, when you're there for 10 to 12 hours, sometimes for a game and you don't want to go like go stand in line of the concession stand because then you might miss part of the game, whatever. So you, and you're working and you sort of have to, like, they kind of have to provide food for you. We're not expecting, I am, would be, it, they don't have to give us free food. I think, I actually think we should pay. But like an idea of like, like it's our meal we're eating and we're trying to stay alive. And I don't know if I just thought it into existence, but they've had Brussels sprouts. They've had broccoli. They had mixed vegetables this past week. Every time I walk in, I scream, I shout. Oh, the vegetables. And it's just a spectacular thing. So thanks to Ohio State for keeping me alive. But the other thing is chicken cone. <laughs> now back on my time, let's talk about what I eat when I'm making food. A chicken cone. This is what I eat six days a week and is why I need the green vegetables at Ohio yeah. State on Saturdays. <laughs> the only the only pr- thing in my life that provides green vegetables for me is the football team that I cover. That's where I am. Chicken cone, chicken cone is down the street. We've been waiting for chicken cone to arrive. It has opened. I have not gone yet. It basically seems to be a waffle cone that normally you would put ice cream in and they just put chicken fingers in it instead. It is pretty basic, but we've looked at the Yelp reviews and for whatever reason, it seems like our chicken cone is air frying the chicken 
instead of deep frying the chicken and the reviews are not good. And I don't know why you would do that. Now it is not a huge building. It used to be a wrap place. I actually like the wraps there. It was called B fit. That was B E space F I T B fit wraps, but I called it B fit. Like it was B E E F I T. I'm going to beef it, but I would, it would have a, you know, like a meat name, but then I'd have vegetables there. So it's a sm- maybe they'll have room for the deep fryers, but if you're, I'm going to eat a waffle cone with chicken in it, but you're going to air fry it to try to say it like, what are we doing? Right. Right. And, and the people are saying it's like people who know what's up with chicken cone are outraged by it. So I, I, I dislike that. Like if you want to offer a salad, offer a salad, but don't try to, well, let's make the fried thing and the fried thing and the fried thing 10% less murderous and 80% less tasty. So I'm going to try chicken cone. This would be a better discussion if I had tried it, but I don't know what they're doing, man. It's a waffle cone full of chicken. I mean, come on. We all know the deal. You almost need to find where there's the next closest chicken cone and also try that Yeah, where they are using the deep fryer. So then you'd have the side-by-side comparison. It might be Arizona. So I got to figure it out. Again, this is why central Ohio, man, fast food, fast casual capital of the world. We have everything. We have everything. So- all right. What are you thinking about? So even in our profession, which is a job where you get to like dig into things sometimes and like, you know, try to track down secrets and stuff like that. I don't know that there's very often that we get to act, actually like solve a mystery. And I feel like we sort of solved a mystery today in our house um, because so I, I might have mentioned a few. It's been a couple months now. Our dog got sprayed by a skunk and it was awful and it stinks the whole house up. And But then a few weeks later, he started coming in with an altogether new smell. And it was not a smell like a skunk. And it was not a smell like poo. It was a smell that was more like sewage. And <laughs> I really, this is actually a very nice, beautiful dog. But he just gets into stuff, as dogs do when you let them outside sometimes. And I was, like, adamant that, like, this is not, he's not, like, stepping in poo or rolling in poo. This is, like, something different. And my wife at first, the first night that I noticed it, it was so bad that like I thought I, I thought it was like my BO. I thought like I had like worn a shirt with like terrible BO and like forgotten to wash it. And I was like, but then finally I figured out it was him. And then you couldn't unsmell it. And like that whole night I was like, can you really not smell how bad he is? And she's like, no. And I'm like, well, like literally get down and smell him. And like once she did, I thought she was going to pass out. Like you couldn't not smell it. And it would just, we would clean it. We'd bathe him. And then like a few days later, he'd come back in with that same like dingy stink. And finally today, my wife figured out that our neighbor's trash can is like right up against our fence and stuff has been getting out of their trash can. And I think that is where the stench is coming from, that there's like garbage or whatever over there that he's trying to get to and it's contaminating his face whenever he's trying to like poke his nose through the fence to get to it. So now we know what the origin of it is. Now it's just a matter of keeping him away from the fence, but it's hard to do because we just let him out the back because it's to just let him do his business because we have other things to do with our life. The whole point is that I don't have to watch him while he's back there, but now I kind of do, unless I want to keep giving him a bath every three days or whatever. Did you read Encyclopedia Brown mysteries when you were a young boy? Like 40 years ago. Yeah. 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 It's like Encyclopedia Brown in the case of the smelly pooch. 
and you you uh, you know it's a, it's a gentle it's scratching my gentle mystery bone oh is this a, is this a terrible is this like a, a life-changing problem no but it's unpleasant so let's let's solve this unpleasant mystery without exerting that much effort but it, it's pleasurable to solve a mystery i'll tell you what we're scratching a lot of gentle bones on this show tonight. I'm feeling good about it. I hope people are enjoying it. It's like an NPR show. The smelly dog, air fried chicken. You know, it's just. I think the headline for this should just be just scratching gentle bones. <laughs> Buckeye talk. See how you. Buckeye talk. Gentle. So I was reminded, so this air, everybody on college football was freaking out over the weekend because the, the sports channels were breaking in from to college football games to show Aaron Judge walk because maybe he was going to hit his 61st home run. And everybody was like, you know what we would do if we wanted to watch it? We would watch it. But you don't have to interrupt Missouri-Auburn to show us this thing that we don't care about because Aaron Judge is trying to hit his 61st home run. I don't know if he hit it or not because I don't care. But it reminds me, and I understand that's not the record anymore, but it's a Yankee chasing 61, and I understand why that means something. But it reminded me that I did, and I know I've told this story on a podcast before, but I'm going to tell it again. I did cover the McGuire-Sosa home run chase in 1998 because I was a first-year traveling baseball beat writer for the Philadelphia Phillies for a newspaper in Wilmington, Delaware, and... It was like, well, my team stinks. Why don't we have me go cover something that people actually care about? Because, you know, the whole nation. Now, you you were swept up in that. Were you not? Were you like in college, senior year of high school? What were you? And you were a Cardinals fan, right? So you must have been going nuts. So that would have been 98. I graduated high school in 96. So I was a little bit in between. And I definitely, obviously, I was was semi-wrapped up in it. But I was also a Cardinals fan who had a, I wouldn't say a resentment for Mark McGuire, but a, it just became like this sideshow where, you know, people would show up and then McGuire would like leave in the third inning with back spasms and everybody would leave the stadium. Like it became a, a, a distraction from the real baseball. And it was also, they didn't really ever win anything with Mark McGuire, but it was, it was a cool, I mean, I, I remember the, it was, it was very fun to have McGuire Sosa be the head to head thing because it was Cardinals Cubs. And yeah. like my whole life has just basically th- up to that point, the central theme of it was how the Cardinals were great and the Cubs were terrible. And yeah. that was like needed to just be driven in at all possible instances. Yeah. So, um, so the, the deal was I was, the Phillies were playing a series in Milwaukee and I was flying to Chicago to then drive to Milwaukee because it was cheaper than flying to Milwaukee. But by the time we had gotten to that, and then my plan was then I was going to go to the Cubs Cardinals series after that, where McGuire and Sosa were going to go head to head and potentially both be on the precipice of the record at that point. But then McGuire got hot and he was close. And so when I flew to Chicago, I was like, why am I driving to Milwaukee to cover a series nobody cares about? Why don't I just drive to St. Louis now and catch McGuire now? Because what if he hits 61 like before Sosa even gets there? So I drove to St. Louis, and I think he hit 60, but he didn't hit 61 yet, if I remember it correctly. So then I was there, and then, again, I was. it was a suburban paper. I was trying to save money. I was 24 years old. It was my first year on the beat. I was – Figuring stuff out on the fly. I just turned 25, actually, by that point. And so I had a car in St. Louis that I needed to get back to Chicago because the plan had was going to be 
that I was going to fly to fly to Chicago, drive to Milwaukee, drive from Milwaukee back to Chicago, and then fly from Chicago to St. Louis. So I had a plane ticket from Chicago to St. Louis, and I had a car in St. Louis that I needed to get back to Chicago because I didn't want to pay the big rate to drop it off at a different spot than where I rented it from. So I was trying to work this out with my wife, like at 11 o'clock at night. And she was like, well, what if you just drove the car back? And I was like, that's a great idea. So I, however far it is from St. Louis to Chicago, it was like five hours. So I just got in the car and I drove from St. Louis to Chicago to drop off the car. The last hour I had the radio blasting. I had all the windows open. I definitely was hallucinating. I was singing to myself. I don't know exactly how I got the car back. And then I dropped off the car at the airport rental place, went into the airport, slept in a chair at the gate for 45 minutes, got on the plane with no luggage, flew back to St. Louis, went back to the hotel room that I'd only been out of for like seven hours, showered and went to the ballpark because I was trying to save my paper like 150 bucks. And that was the best way that I could do it. But then I got to cover that stuff and it was crazy. And I, I wrote a story. I found like McGuire's family in the stands and I watched them watch him hit the home run. And then I wound up in an elevator with McGuire's dad. And I got, it was like great to be there. And it was a great experience, but I'm, I might've levitated the last hour of the drive. I don't know how I got there. It's not funny because I could have hurt myself or somebody else. And it was a terrible decision that I would never make today. But um Tell you what, man, you're right there. You're a young writer. You're trying to do something. You're trying to, you're getting to do something cool, but you're trying to save money, but you're trying to be comprehensive with your coverage and you kind of do what you got to do, which is why now I have been in situations. This is usually with the lantern kids where, you know, cause college kids, they'll be like, oh, we covered Ohio state at this thing. And now we're driving 11 hours without sleeping to get back for class. And I'm like, I will buy you a hotel room. Please do not drive while you're hallucinating, while you are sleep deprived. It is not worth it. And that's why, because I did it that night. So anyway, that was my home run. And I have like, I bought some stuff. I was like, oh, these, this 61 home run thing, this is going to, I have like a crate of like McGuire crap in my basement that I thought I'll buy it and I'll sell it in 30 years on eBay. And it's like, nobody cares anymore and because nobody cares about Aaron judge. Everybody's like, don't interrupt Missouri Auburn. Cause I don't care about a baseball home run thing anymore. Right. Because judge is trying to be like the fourth most home runs hit in a season. Now, like it's going to be the American league record or whatever, but it's, <laughs> it, I, I know he's a Yankee and Roger Maris and Babe Ruth. And yes, I understand why 61 is, but still it, it has definitely been, lesson even the, the discussions we've had before about how you know whether people care about baseball or not as much like just the the feet itself the polish is a little bit taken off it if and if it wasn't Aaron Judge that was going for 61 if it was somebody that played for like Seattle or the or the Rangers like nobody would care nobody yeah they would be cutting in anything it's it's remarkable i mean it's like what otani is doing is probably the most remarkable sporting feat of my lifetime. And it's on the short list, man. I don't want to say nobody cares because that's not fair. There are people who really care about baseball, but it is not a prominent featured discussion well, point of American sports right now. It's a, it's a, it's a second tier West coast team 
it's you can say whether or not the fact that he's Asian has anything to do with it too. I think probably a little bit. Um, but I like one of the best stats that I ever that I saw all year in years probably in sports was Jeff Passan, who covers baseball for it used to be Yahoo. I think he's ESPN now, maybe. Whose dad um, used to work for the Cleveland Plan Dealer, by the way. Oh, okay. He tweeted out a thing that was like, like it's like player A, player B, player C, player D, or like pitcher A, pitcher B, batter A, batter B. And it was like, who are these people? And like pitcher A and batter A were two really good players at those respective things. It was like Mookie Betts, and I can't remember who the pitcher was. And B for both of them was to show Otani. And it was like equal what he was doing and so like being the best in the game at both things at once is unreal it's unreal I, like i don't know what else is i don't know what's comparable to it i loved i mean it would be if you had a, a, fo- a football player who like played both ways i think and was as Which good nobody would even it's that's it's different but like nobody would even con like consider but it is so i mean but like think about like how big of a deal bo jackson and Deion sanders were it felt like when they were doing yeah. when they were playing baseball and football at the same time like, and like, yeah, like this if, is a version of that, but it just doesn't feel like as big of a deal to me. If Deion Sanders had also been like a Pro Bowl caliber receiver. Yeah, which I which like maybe we'll have today because I do remember like I, I was a huge baseball fan as a kid. I remember thinking to myself and not because I didn't understand baseball like I was limit limited in my physicality. The only reason I was like a decent little league player is because I I understood baseball. But I always thought, why can't pitchers hit? Like, why is it like that? Why can't? And and he like he's the answer to that. It's like a beautiful answer, and baseball just doesn't just doesn't know what to do with it. So anyway, good luck to the Guardians. They're a great story. We're gonna have great coverage at Cleveland.com from Paul Hoynes and Joe Noga and Terry Pluto uh, throughout their postseason run, however long it lasts. Um, they have had a remarkable, remarkable season. They consistently their roster building is as good, I think, as any team in any sport in North America, the way they are able to identify talent, develop talent, creatively trade the talent and get more talent right when they can't pay a guy, you know, the way they're able, they they got stuff for Lindor. They got stuff for Corey Kluber. They're consistently able to do that. Then they strategically keep a guy like Jose Ramirez. It is, it is remarkable what the guardians have done. And again, Terry Francona, I covered baseball for, four years in Philadelphia. He was the manager for three of them. Um, and the way he handles a major league clubhouse is again, remarkable. So uh, good luck to the guardians. I know there are a lot of people in Ohio who actually are very excited about them. And we certainly don't mean to be dismissive of that. Uh, I just wish baseball did a better job of promoting the great things about that sport. So that's it. That's this Monday pod. I'll be back with rants on Wednesday. In the meantime, try the text at 614-350-3315. Read cleveland.com slash OSU. And try the College Football Survivor Show if you hadn't. I think I'm going to try to have Shahan have a discussion about Ohio State with me this week. Because um, we did a lot about Georgia last week. We had done a lot about BYU and Alabama the week before that. I think we need to have on that national show Uh, a pretty meaty discussion about where the Buckeyes are right now. For Nathan Baird, I'm Doug LaMaurice. That was Buckeye Talk. Mm -hmm.